Hi, this is Derek Harp, the founder and chairman of CSA and the host of the CSA podcast show. And I've got a, uh, I would say another great episode, but really a very special episode. Uh, many of you will recognize uh, my next uh, guest. If you've been working in the control system, cybersecurity environment, um, he probably predates you. Um, Joe Weiss, managing partner at Applied Control Solutions, LLC, but longtime contributor to this space, 40 years in industrial control systems, and 20 years of that in industrial control system cybersecurity, and um, and we'll we'll sort of unpack some of his story. But Joe Joe is not only a well-known expert in the space; he's uh, he's an author, he is a patent holder, he is a prolific speaker, he is an engineer, uh, you know, by training, professional engineer. But he's also a racquetball player. He's a bicyclist. He rode 9,000 miles just since December 2019, which I thought was great. Uh, he, as I said, is also a well-known longtime contributor and speaker. He's spoken to Congress. He is a fellow of numerous professional societies. He has written, I don't know how many articles uh, and, uh, and journals. Uh, so Joe, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me. So Joe, uh, I always joke uh, that uh, cybersecurity folks are some sort of modern day superhero and all superheroes have some sort of backstory. This certainly has to apply to you in the superhero status. Uh, you've been ringing the bell uh, on this problem space, uh, again, as long as anybody probably could say they have been, um, you've been there and uh, have a ton of perspective about what's working and what's not and what we should be concerned about. And I know we're gonna get into that. Um, where where did where did you come from? Where did Joe uh, you know, grow up? I was born and raised in Phoenix in Arizona and uh, never thought I would be leaving there. It's just, when we would go on vacation, we would either go like to LA or to San Diego. And this one time we ended up going by the San Onofre nuclear plant and they had a visitor's station. And we went through that. And for whatever reason, that hit me that I wanted to go into nuclear. And that's where things kind of changed. I don't know if I was 10, 11, whatever at the time, but that's kind of what steered me into where I wanted to end up. So uh, I'm, I'm always curious, you know, before choosing uh, to, you know, any kind of university work, um, did did uh, cybersecurity or technology, not cybersecurity at the time, but, you know, uh, computers, did any of that intersect with your life or, or engineering? Um, or was that something you started pursuing with your, you know, with um, degree work? Yeah, well, what happened was, again, I'm old. And I grew up in the uh, toward the end of the slide rule age. And when we were starting to use computers, we were using both analog as well as digital. But like in college, you know, it was one of these things where you had shared computer time. So you would they had this big CDC at, at school and you would turn in your program at night and the next day you would get it back and figure out, oh, gee, this is what I did wrong. Now, what do I got to do next? But computers weren't really there yet. Just kind of an aside, when I got my first job at GE, GE Nuclear, I was scared to death when I had to turn in my first computer program because I was so scared it was going to bomb and they were going to fire me. And so it took me literally three or four days to go collect my computer run because I was afraid it wasn't, you know, it was going to bomb. It was just, and by the way, those were all punch cards. Right. So that was, you know, we're talking, you know, the concept of, of being involved in 
computers, no, that wasn't ever, you know, part of the thought process. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's all thinking about chronological. You know, my brother is five years older than me, and he was a programmer for many years. And he was doing, I remember when he was in high school, and I would have been, you know, five years behind that, they were borrowing some computer time from a local corporation. They would load the, you know, the cards at the end of the day would go there at night, they'd get them back the next day. So that cycle that you describe, I recognize that. And he probably was in some of the last classes to ever, to ever learn that way. Mm -hmm. The, the book end of that. Um, so um, did you go right from high school to, to um, university? Yeah. What and did then, you study? Uh, I was in nuclear engineering at the University of Arizona. And I went you there. Did, to that plant. You saw that plant when you were 10 or 11, and that is what you went to study. You did not waver. And, and it was, it, it, it turned out that U of A had the only, uh, had the reactor they had a trigger training reactor, whereas Arizona State didn't. And that's why I went to the U. And then when I graduated and went to, to GE, again, I was going to do anything they wanted. But the, the lot the you know, furthest thing from my mind is I'm doing things with computers. And yet one of, one of my first jobs at GE is there was a uh, nuclear plant simulator that was actually out at Morris, Illinois by the Dresden plants. That was the point where there was one for all of industry. And I was told I had to do some work on some of the physics on that. And that seemed okay. But this was assembly language. Here I was having troubles with Fortran. And this is all, you know, all of this bit shifting and everything in assembly language. So if there was anything that was going to chase me away from computers, that was it. So then uh, what happens after um, your degree? Well, I ended up, like I say, going to GE and I had spent about 10 years at GE. And the, again, you know, when, when you're coming out of school, a lot of times, you know, you're sort of a generalist. I mean, that's all you've got. Well, I went to the area where they hired me was in instrumentation controls. Ergo, gee, I'm an instrumentation controls expert. Uh, I was learning from everybody. And one of my projects, by the way, very interesting one, and it is it, because I was the junior, junior person there. They needed to document where all of the calculations in the plant process computer came from. So I was given the job of wandering around to all of these people who did all of these calculations put it in a notebook, I actually found, without being flippant, the envelopes, some of these calculations were based on, I have the back of the envelopes in that binder. When they joke about the back of the envelope, calc I found the envelopes. Oh, wow. I love it. Well, I can, you know, it's interesting, you know, I, I um, can see where you're your background. So you, you get 20 formative years, and I don't know where, and I'm, I want to ask you, of course, where cybersecurity first pops up, even even the inkling of security around this stuff, uh, when that first pops up for you. But clearly, your formative years are about all the engineering disciplines and making these systems work safely. And, and you spend 20 years doing that. I mean, is it 20 years before security comes up at all? Or I know, obviously, physical security around the kind of plans you're working on, that goes without saying. But when did any, you know, when did you start seeing the introduction of technologies and, and the discussions of, of, of security in there? Well, my quote unquote, this is going to come out in a funny way. My nuclear years 
really didn't have a computer quote unquote focus. Yeah. And like I say, my first five years at EPRI was running the nuclear instrumentation and diagnostics programs, not worried about computers. Then I moved over and for five years ran the fossil plant instrumentation controls programs. Well, when I was doing that, we were trying to get plants to go digital. Our whole thing was to get them to go digital. So that's where I started getting involved. And I remember in 1995, the head of IT at EPRI came into my office asking me to address cybersecurity. And I basically almost threw him out of the office because I'm going, we don't care about email. <laughs> it never dawned on me. And then lo and behold, in I think it was 97, I ended up starting the Y2K embedded systems program at EPRI for the, you know, the electric and everybody else. And it started, if, if all things, because I had people calling me from all over saying, IBM can't spell the word pneumatic. So we needed something that was more germane. Well, what we were really doing, but never looked at it, was really looking at, if you will, the first um, unintentional big cyber issue. That was the clocks. We never considered malicious because that was just, I mean, who'd ever want to do something malicious to a turbine? I mean, at that point in time, the only malicious stuff were people trying to steal money or claim to fame by being able to hack something that was really, but what in the world, a, a power plant or a pipeline or anything else, that just wasn't under, you know, who would do that? Yeah. And so, yeah. and, and we weren't really thinking about the unintentional, though the unintentional was Y2K. So what happened about Y2K though, and it had a, a very distinct impact is, there was a law that was passed that made all officers and directors personally liable for Y2K. And so what happened was all of the silos came down. It's amazing what happens when officers and directors are personally liable. <laughs> I made a mistake. You know, December 31st at 11:59, everything was that way. We figured at 12.01 on 2000, that things would still be the same. So the reason we started the control system cyber program at EPRI was not because we knew there was a problem. It was because it was the first time ever all of the silos came down. And we thought we would keep it going by saying, hey, let's look at the malicious cases, not knowing there were, that there were even any of them. But we had a chance to keep the dialogue going because, and by the way, this wasn't just for electric, this was for every industry. So that was why we started. One of the things we also, that was behind it, was it was supposed to have been an engineering issue. There was this big problem, you know, way back in 2000, in fact, before then, where IT was trying to push its way into the control system world. And Windows was kind of the way of doing it because we were starting to move more and more toward Windows HMIs, operating systems. Well, guess what? That's where IT came. And we started joking. We were gonna have to be able to dictate terms of surrender because we were concerned as IT would come in, they were gonna, well, 
again, this is, you know, this is late 90s, you know, early 2000s. And that culture problem that we were running into then is alive and well today and is really preventing, no matter what anybody tells you, preventing the ability to secure control systems anywhere. It is not this ITOT convergence that people keep talking about. It's the issue that the engineers who know the systems are either kept out or kept out or don't want to come in. And the network people feel there's no need for them because the only thing they're worried about are the networks. And that problem is exacerbating itself daily. It's not, you know, we thought there was a thing called donut diplomacy. You know, take your, you know, take your IT person out or have the IT person take the engineer out and you, you learn to work together. We thought, you know, we had the term donut diplomacy. It hasn't worked. Yeah, you're 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 talking on a topic. I agree with you. There's a lot of what I what I've characterized as dysfunction, things you're describing. And it's like, oh my gosh, if we don't solve that, the the next you know, whiz bang technology is not the answer. It's like there's human being problems at work here. That they're the they're honestly the root of everything. Because if you don't solve them, people will work around yeah. the technology and defeat it. Yeah. Yeah, the precedent is long, long there for that. That's a fact for sure. Um, would you define or not define, uh, some of our listeners might not be familiar with EPRI, which is a very unique organization. Could you talk a little bit about that, maybe just to give people background on EPRI? Yeah, EPRI stands for the Electric Power Research, Research Institute. It was started kind of after the first New York blackout. This is back in the um, 80s timeframe or 70s to 80s timeframe. Um, Carter, I think, was president at the time and basically told the utilities, you're not spending enough on R&D. Do that or I'll tax you into it. And so they basically recruited Chauncey Starr, who was a professor at uh, UCLA, and got him to start this institute. It was the collaborative R&D arm of the electric industry. And when it started, it was all about the big picture. The big picture being, you know, nuclear, especially because of Three Mile Island. It was the the start of combustion turbines. You know, one of the big, the other big things was the electromagnetic effects from high voltage, you know, power lines. People mm. were thinking, hey, it's giving me cancer. Yeah, okay. it was the it was the the big picture stuff. And as time went on, it kind of drove down some. But anyways, the irony is much of what I'm doing to this day started from all of the work I was doing first at GE and then at EPRI on instrumentation and controls. And this is where the head knocking is occurring to this day because the OT network people basically feel it's the networks. You know, um, you know, when Derek, when you did your in, uh, intro to Rob Gary, because I listened to that before this. Yeah, yeah. You even mentioned that it's the networks you were concerned about. I'm worried about what feeds the networks because we have no cybersecurity or authentication there. So all of those networks to this day 
are trying or you're spending hundreds of millions of dollars to secure untrusted and unauthenticated data. Kind of a crazy thing to say, isn't it? Here we are in almost 2023. What's the what's the remedy to that? Or remedy um, as the case the remedy now again this I'm not going to talk about any vendor, but I'm going to talk about technology. And literally in the November issue of IEEE Computer, we have an article on this. And it's going back to where I was at EPRI back in the, in, the, in the 80s and 90s. We have to be looking at the physics of the field devices, the sensors, the actuators, the analyzers. When you start looking at, for example, four to 20 milliamp currents or electromagnetic spectra, you can't hack that, but it is the absolute quote unquote signature of the process you're actually trying to measure and control. This is ground truth. We need to be able to know, is that signal coming from that pressure sensor or is it coming from Beijing? We need to know, is that sensor really working? And when it says it's 80 degrees, is it really truly 80 degrees or is it 75 or 85? That, the thing about the sensors is they're not just cybersecurity. They're the root of everything. There's cybersecurity, there's safety, there's product quality, there's reliability, there's the input to the digital twins. Like I say, they're everything. If you think about it, thus your fingers, eyes, ears, nose, that's what sends the signals to the brain, which is your computer. And if that's off, there is nothing the brain that's going to be doing that's going to be doing it right. And yet what's happened is this is the engineering side of the world. It doesn't become the cyber side to people until it's turned into an Ethernet packet. But there's all kinds of issues that occur before that ever happens. And all everybody who's dealing with networks has made a faulty assumption. They assume the sensors are uncompromised, authenticated, and correct. And I've got data going back current all the way back to 20 years, 30 years ago. The reason you, you calibrate sensors is they're not correct. They're electromechanical devices or even optical, whatever. But over time, they change. Or somebody has a fat finger and does something wrong with the calibration or whatever. Well, none of that is really picked up when you look at a network. If you do that, you now have real cybersecurity and real productivity and real safety, but we're not going end to end. And that's where my head hurts. If at the point something is encapsulated in a packet, it's whatever's in there, it's gonna get transferred. It, you know, the, the truth between the sensor and when it got encapsulated, you're saying, who knows, the stuff that's happening in there, once it gets encapsulated in an IP, TCP IP packet, it's too late. It's gonna transmit well, it, it's gonna send it. No, what, what happened, again, this article that's in IEEE, computer, where it came from, was an interesting story. It was a major manufacturing facility, billion-dollar facility. 
and they were very uncomfortable about their productivity. So what they did, and when they looked at the Windows HMI, everything looked fine. You know, the sensors looked fine, the pumps looked fine, everything looked fine. So they did something that was really phenomenally interesting. They took one of the lines that had 16 sensors on it, pressure, temperature, flow, motor amperage, vibration, and valve position. That's every industrial or manufacturing facility in the world. And what they wanted to do was simply look at the raw sensor data and do machine learning on it and see, did that give them a different answer? Well, it turns out the first thing they found, which blew everybody's mind, was more than half of those sensors were either inoperable or out of calibration. And the Windows HMI didn't see any of it. The next thing they looked at were the pumps. And the main, these were the main feed pumps. And it turns out that when they started looking at, if you will, the raw unfiltered machine learning data, what they were finding was that the pumps were actually having real problems, but they were having real problems within seconds, less than a minute. Well, the Windows OS has a refresh rate of many, many seconds to minutes. It physically isn't possible to see any of this. So they did a detailed analysis of the cost benefit of what we were seeing. And what they found was in this billion dollar facility, they were taking a 3% hit on net productivity. You're talking about the first time really ever to be able to put a real ROI number, plus or minus, on what it really means. When you're dealing with cyber, you're dealing with insurance of, hey, things didn't happen. On the engineering or sensor side, you're dealing with the real process every second of every day. And oh, by the way, cyber comes along for the ride. This is the only way to make things work, to force the network people who cannot do sensors or engineering to have to work with the engineering people who are not network specialists. And the CISOs are not engineering specialists and don't own any of this. So our system is broken. It's not getting, it's getting worse. Neil Peterson has put stuff out. He just did last week this interview with a CISO who was saying, hey, like it or not, the CISO's taken over OT cybersecurity. That's dangerous. You know, I'm sorry you're gonna that we're going off kilter because I know you wanted to get history, but this is kind of where my history has driven me. And I've read, I, I'm not, I know you were gonna talk about this because I've read a lot of things you've you've written and I know this is an area you're you're quite quite passionate about. And like you said, years building up to your uh, your view of the of the ecosystem. And it's just, and by the way, I know like you came out of the Navy, da, 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 da. to me a Navy, you know, a ship is nothing but a power plant with rudders. <laughs> yes. Yeah, more or less. <laughs> I mean, when I was at EPRI, like I say, I was dealing because in the nuclear plants, we were, when we were doing monitoring diagnostics, our issue was, did that pump valve or whatever have enough life to live through a nuclear fuel cycle? whether you're in the Navy or you're, you know, maritime, whatever, you want to know that the equipment on the ship, ship has enough life to be able to go from point A to point B or, you know, for your duty duration. And it's the same pumps and the same valves doing the same things. 
And that's why I was dealing with David Taylor Naval Research. We were both, for different reasons, trying to figure out how much life do we have left. Now, today I'm also asking, is cyber going to cause there to be less life, quote unquote, more life, more risk? What can I trust? Never asked those questions 20 years ago. Yeah. I mean, the truth is no, nobody was, right? I mean, it wasn't like that wasn't the table that was set at the time. No, we, we basically did what we were tasked to do. And where I kept coming and where I am to this day is I kept looking at things and saying, wait a minute, why isn't this doing what we think it should be doing? And that's how I found, quote unquote, the Rosemont oil loss problem, how we found that the vibration monitoring on pumps if it was a vertical pump, wasn't even looking at the right data. So we didn't even know that one of the main coolant pumps in a nuclear plant had a 60% through wall crack. The vibration sensors didn't tell us. This is real stuff. This is why, you know, and I go into this whole issue of cyber and I'm going, you're not looking at the only thing that makes it control system. If all you do is look at IP networks, you might as well just be doing IT. The only thing that makes it different are pumps, valves, relays, heat exchangers, sensors. Other than that, it's a network. What are we not looking at? The only thing that makes it not a network, or to put it another way, the only thing we're not looking at is where you go boom in the night. And that's the only place we have no cybersecurity. So it's a different story. So what did you do after uh, after Epric? I ended up uh, going to a company called Kima. And I had mentioned I had to go through a, a thought process. I was leaving Epri, among other things, because the IT world was trying to take over. And I could not stop that. So I was moving and I tried to ask. I had two types of places to go to. Do I go to an IT cybersecurity company and have to teach them engineering? Or do I go to an engineering company and say, I'll teach you what you need to know about cyber? And it seemed much easier and much better to go to an engineering company and do that. And that's where I went to Kima, which ironically started out as in life as the EPRI of the Netherlands. I mean, that's where they were doing all of the big testing. They're in Arnhem. They would test all of this equipment. They'd bring them up in barges and do all of this testing. Yeah. So the whole point is it started off as an engineering issue. It was what didn't we do? We looked at seismic. We looked at environmental. We looked at, we just never looked at the, uh, the electronic communication. That was what this was all about. Could that cause a problem beyond, if you will, what's called the design basis of the equipment or the plant? If it doesn't, we're fine. You know, go let IT do whatever IT wants to do. But if you can cause a safety problem that you never had addressed, that's an engineering, you know, approach that must be done to figure out what do I need to do to make sure that it's still safe. And we're not doing that near as well as we should. Now, there are people that are doing good jobs. They're the engineers, and they're not always kept in this loop. You know, there's a small number of people 
that really fit in that boat. And I'll mention one other point, <clears throat> and that's the official term OT. OT was a new term defined by Gartner because they didn't know what a control system was. So what did they do? They said, okay, OT is everything but IT. Well, what happened was that became the ticket for IT people to be able to cross this bridge and say, I'm now OT. Because OT is truly, it's not the relay engineer, it's not the instrument engineer, it's not the turbine engineer, it's not the manufacturing engineer. OT is really the people responsible for those networks. And that's why this gap is still there between engineering, and I don't want to say IT or OT, I'm saying networking. And it's why there are no cyber secure or authenticated field devices because the engineers making those don't have any cybersecurity requirements. All of the cybersecurity requirements. And here I am, managing director of ISA 99. But you look at 4.2, which is the component spec, it doesn't apply to legacy devices to this day. What it applies to. How does this get solved? I mean, the problem you're describing, and I, I know you've, you've spoken to Congress, you've written books on this. I mean, how does this part of the equation get? Fixed. Here's what I'm hoping. Last chance, but here's what I'm hoping. That Moody's, Fitch, Standard & Poor's, and the insurance companies are going to refuse to put up with this unacceptable risk. Because this is existential risk. And instead of trying to say, you know, you know, compliance game or this, that, or whatever, this is risk. And I've been having these discussions with them. You know, Moody's, you know, all of them almost went bankrupt during the financial crisis because they didn't they didn't see it or didn't do anything. You know, something really bad happens now. They're going to go bankrupt. You know, there's no insurance company that's going to be able to cover, quote unquote, another northeast outage or bigger. So I'm trying to get to those people who have skin in the game. And with all due respect, it's not the government other than the government has their own equipment. You better do something about your own things. If you look at what's coming out to this day of CISA, DOE, you name it, it is all entirely network, IP network focused. There has never been a CVE or any type of vulnerability notification on a sensor or an actuator, even though they have no cybersecurity whatsoever, zero. None of our infrastructure, if you will, cybersecurity infrastructure is set up to deal with things that are totally insecure by design without an existing capability of upgrading. All of that stuff is set up that somebody made a mistake and didn't have a strong enough encryption program or didn't do this or that. Not that it has zero. And until we can get quote unquote, Washington, un Washington understand this is not just another, that quote unquote ICS. And I hate the term I, even though I was one of the people that came up with the term, because when you use the word industrial, too many people turn off and say, I don't have a smokestack. Yep. And so I try not to use the word industrial. It's control system. That's why, by the way, Joe, we dropped that uh, in the early seven years ago, we dropped that from our associations conceivable name at the time, we were, what, what should we call this? 
we said, well, you know what? And in fact, one of the early people at one of the very, very first meetings that people were exchanging ideas and concepts was from building management system background. He goes, we would never call our BMS uh, industrial. Could you guys not use the word industrial and just call it control systems? And that's how that's how we ended up with just using. Yeah, well, systems. my book is called Protecting Industrial Control Systems from Electronic Threats. I wrote it in 2010. By the way, it's still valid, unfortunately. And, and, and let me also tell you why the name of the, my book, because I think you might find this of interest. It's called protecting because compromising control systems is not difficult. Protecting is rocket science because the issue is the control system has to work. If you put, quote unquote, too much security on it, the control system doesn't work. It's that simple. It says, you know, I use the term industrial control system. I wish they didn't, but I didn't use the word SCADA because I don't care what the system, whether it's a DC distributed control system, SCADA system, um, a remote terminal unit, a sensor, an actuator, a drive, an analyzer. It's anything that monitors or controls a physical process. Your heart is a control system. Okay. But the last part of the, I think is really interesting. It says from electronic threats. And the reason for that is when I gave my second, I started the first control system cybersecurity conference. When I left EPRI in 2002 and went to Kima, they had me start the first control system cyber conference. I was in 2002. And when we had my first conference, three, I, I sent everything out to the people I knew, which were the engineers. Yeah. The three organizations showed up I didn't invite. I didn't even know. I, they, they, not that I didn't want them there. I just didn't even know who they, who they were. One was the National Transportation Safety Board. Mm. What in the world is NTSB doing at a control system cyber conference? They were there because they were finalizing the report on the Bellingham, Washington Olympic pipeline rupture that, oh, by the way, was cyber. Surprise, surprise. There was a country, utility country, from Asia there. Why? They had had multiple control system cyber incidents. One took out almost 10% of the generation in their country. I didn't know that until they showed up. I don't know how they found out about it. The third was now a friend of mine from the Idaho National Lab. That's what eventually led to the SCADA testbed that I helped start. Now, the second conference, I'm just going to leave it at that, but I want you to understand because of the book. This was April 2003. There wasn't a SCADA testbed yet anywhere. So I had Idaho, Sandia, Pacific Northwest National Lab, NIST, and I was doing work with Navy Mission Assurance in Dahlgren, Virginia, and they have a test range. So I had them all speak and say, why should you be the SCADA test bed? Well, the first two slides, remember this is a totally unclassified conference. The first two slides put up by Dahlgren on Navy letterhead was a destroyer was coming into the port of uh, San Diego, and they still had their high power pulse radar test uh, system on. That Navy destroyer took out the San Diego Gas and Electric and San Diego Water Authority SCADA systems. Surprise, the second slide on Navy letterhead was the Navy was doing pulse radar testing in Europe and ended up blowing up a 36 inch pipeline. This is the real stuff. This is not what the network people want to talk about. But that's why it says protecting industrial control systems from electronic threats. 
you know, this is, again, I apologize if we were kind of not going the normal route, but that's where things have come from and why, you know, my database is so big, you know, over 17 million cases with over 34,000 deaths, because all of these are electronic communication between systems or systems and people that affected either confidentiality, which isn't the issue really, integrity or availability, every one of them. And availability wasn't the availability of the data, like with Bellingham, you know, with the Olympic pipeline rupture. It was the ability of the pipe to remain, you know, structurally sound. It burst, killed three people. By the way, three people went to jail on that because they refused to testify to NTSB. And this joint venture of Shell and Texaco went bankrupt because of that incident. And by the way, that incident, it's in my book. We ended up, Marshall Abrams from MITRE and I did the detailed evaluation or analysis of that, you know, post-event, comparing it to NIST 853. We've done some really interesting stuff. You know, I did a kind of a similar thing for the International Atomic Energy Agency, looking at a number of actual nuclear plant cyber incidents. And what should you have been looking for? What training is necessary? None of that is there today. It's interesting. I'm, you're not seeing me, but I'm seeing you. I'm seeing your face and I'm watching. This is different stuff. Yeah, you know, it's it's I've read some of your stuff, but it's you know hearing it uh, hearing it straight from you, it's it's thought provoking. You know, yeah, it's it's triggering a lot of different thoughts for me. Um, you know, it's always what to do about all this is what keeps coming you know coming to mind. And and tying back to what people could do, there's people entering this workforce. You know, I've thought about this a couple of times while you're talking, you know, what advice do you have for people entering the force? And you've sort of indicated, obviously, you, that you think that, that there's a huge advantages to people with engineering backgrounds that are working to tackle this problem. So regardless of background, or maybe you, maybe, maybe you say specifically, you know, someone of this background, this is something they should do or could do. You know, what's the workforce of tomorrow going to look like that can tackle this? Well, there, there's two things. First of all, we're never going to, and I don't think we should ever be trying to, create a superman or a superwoman when it comes to control system cyber. Our problem is most cyber cybersecurity is taught within computer science. Most computer science programs do not require an introduction to engineering. They're clueless. That's how they come out. Most engineering disciplines, whether it's electrical, mechanical, nuclear, chemical, civil structure, you name it, <clears throat> don't require an intro to, to cybersecurity or computer science. Forcing this break from the beginning. We need, you want the workforce, the workforce needs to be trained engineers who know when to go ask the network experts. It's network experts who know when to go ask the engineers. I'm not trying to make you know, there's a couple of people, and I use the word couple, that I feel are maybe really, really, really good in both. You don't need to be. You just need to know when to go talk to those really, really, really good people. And we're not doing that. 
And that goes all the way to the top. And like you asked, what do we need to do technically? We need to start making control system cyber an engineering, not network problem. If we can monitor the raw process, you can't hack it. Ransomware can't get to it. Stay off the IP networks unless you've got, say, a data diode or something else. Keep anything from getting down to this level. You can see, like I say, with some of these technology, are the sensors right or not? It's not going to tell you your hack. It's going to tell you, go look. Today, we don't know when to take our tools out. We don't know when to take our cybersecurity tools out. This can help. It's because it's not saying take your cybersecurity tools. It's saying take your cybersecurity tools, your digital twin tools, your calibration tools. Go find out why the sensors are telling you that something is different than it should be. Well, what are you optimistic about? I know that you are, can, you know, you've obviously shared how deeply concerned you are with um, the, the nature of this problem. Is there anything going on in industry trends or developments or anything that you're, you're you know, thinking this, this could lead to good things? The, again, this whole issue of AI, machine learning, et cetera, if you go down low enough, could be great. The other thing is I'm hoping, hoping, hoping we can get the Moody's and the insurance companies to basically say, you know, we're, you know, carrot and stick, do the right things and we'll reward you. When I was at EPRI running a monitoring and diagnostics program, the insurance companies gave companies a break on their premiums if they had a predictive maintenance program. Why? Because you might have to shut down for, say, a $5 million outage, but you're not going to have a $50 to $100 million turbine, you know, fiasco. Well, same thing here. But what's happening today is we are not, not addressing control system cybersecurity. What we are doing is nothing but network security under the guise of the term OT. We've got to be able to do both. And like I say, my hope is that the right people and organizations who have financial skin in the game will do this. I truly believe that trying to have the government do it to you or for you is not going to work. This is not a you know, check the box issue. This is, you know, this is detailed engineering. You've got all of these system interactions and everything else. And the worst part is good, bad, or indifferent. The, if you will, the um, attackers, the offensive cyber people know this. They're using this. They're doing this. The defenders are the ones who refuse to acknowledge this exists. It's, you know, the offensive side has done this and used this not just, you know, for the past 10 to 12 years. We better wake up. Let's talk about, I know, you know, before we wrap up, let's talk about your database. I know that's something you've, you've written about, I've read about it, but I'd like you to maybe touch on that project and what, uh, what you're doing. Well, it's one of these things, it, it, it's very unofficial in a sense. It was my way of collecting these incidents. 
it started out because, like I say, when I was at Epic, I had all of these people telling me. When I started my conference, it was the only conference anywhere where people who actually had their control systems impacted by cyber would speak. By the way, it was the engineers. Why? They wanted to know if anybody else had the same problems they did. The other issue is when you start looking at these incidents, and this is global, and it's all, I don't want to use the word industries. I mean, this is electric, oil, gas, chemicals, manufacturing of all types, transportation. I've got all kinds of cases dealing with satellites and rockets, you know, ships, you name it. And they're multiple. And there's two different types also, you know, where my numbers kind of come from. And I try to put this in the blog. You have cases where each individual kind of quote unquote device or whatever is affected individually. And then you have what I call multipliers. The multipliers is, for example, a cyber-related electric outage. One cyber event with this one outage can affect three, four, five, maybe 50 million people. You know, you have, for example, I don't know what the real answer is. There was a yesterday in Houston, there was a problem at a water purification plant. 2.2 million people are on a boil water order as we speak. Was I don't believe for a minute there's anything malicious about it, but control system cyber, pretty, pretty good chance. One incident, 2.2 million. Now, that's not 2.2 million in my database. That one in my database is one. I don't have a way of accounting for the multiplying efforts. But you have, you know, like I say, it, it's all over. There's over 1,200 cases in electric. Again, these, that's a multiplier industry. There have been six cyber-related electric outages in the U.S. that have affected at least 96,000 customers. If you look at the OE, the, the DOE OE 417s, that's the vulnerability or the outage reporting form, all of those are in there. None of them are in there as being cyber-related. There's one, one last one, and I'll let you know, but again, to give you a flavor, there is a, since May of 2018, there's a category in the 417s, complete loss of view and control in the main control room for more than 30 minutes. There's no other way to call that than cyber. There's been 150 of those since June 18 to February 2022. That's all documented in the DOE OE 417s. And you're you're not subscribing that to a threat actor specifically, are you? No, most of them aren't. Yeah. But here's the Cyber-induced or cyber-induced or cyber-enabled issues. Yes. Okay. Yeah. But here's the other point. If I'm an, uh, uh, an offensive attacker, this just showed me what I can do. A blueprint? It's a blueprint. It's a template. My gosh. You know, 2.2 million people are on boil water. Forget about old smart. That's a nothing. When people go, hey, it's unintentional, it doesn't count. Often the only difference is the motivation. Was somebody really upset or is it truly an oops? Well, our, our annual report last year, we broke apart 
uh, you know, ask people about threat actors. And of the 550 respondents, the insider was the number one threat actor. And we broke that further apart. And the non-intentional, non-malicious insider was the leading threat actor. And and by the way, you know, let me point this out in, in a sense why it's wrong and why my, you know, it turns out the vast majority in the database are actually malicious. What happened was, and this is again, something that the IT world will never buy because it's not what they want to see. But the diesel cheat scandal occurred because all of these companies had spent billions on a high mileage clean diesel. And then EPA changed the ground rules and they couldn't meet it anymore. So it turns out all of these companies went to Bosch, Robert Bosch in Germany, and had Bosch built software to monitor the characteristics of the vehicle. Is the steering wheel turning? What are the, the fuel controls and emission controls doing? Are the back wheels moving? What they did then when the vehicle was under test, that logic, if it said, yes, it's under test, changed the individual emission and fuel controls in the individual cars. This is hardcore control system cyber to change so that they could pass and then changed it back. So it was then spewing 40 times the NOx limits. Now, this was all approved by the senior management of Volkswagen, Fiat Chrysler, Daimler-Benz, Ford, GM, Cummins Diesel, Detroit Diesel, Volvo. This isn't a disgruntled insider. These are rogue corporations. Kind of a different view, isn't it? Well, it's a sobering one, that's for sure. <laughs> and, and this is what are called engineering-based cyber attacks, not only on cars, but think about certain nuclear facility or anything else. And none of this is going to be found by anything on an OT network. Well, Joe, I think some people who are listening are probably going to, you know, they might, some of our listeners may not know your story. You have a blog and people can find a yeah. lot there. Where, where is that? What's that called? It's www.controlglobal.com slash unfettered. U-N-F-E-T-T-E-R-E-D. Control Magazine allows me to use that. I don't work for Control. They, they allow me to use their site for my blogs. So I actually have professionals keeping the blog site going and protected and whatever. But uh, it's, um, it's a different world. And we're not, like I say, the offensive people are looking at it for what it is. The defensive people are looking at it for what they want it to be. That's not a good combination. And the final thing is think about what Russia did with solar winds. They basically bypassed all the latest and greatest IT cybersecurity. We can't trust our critical infrastructure to something where you're playing whack-a-mole. You can't do it. I know there are going to be a lot of people who aren't thrilled to hear this, but it's just plain factual. And like I say, the offensive people know it. And part of the question is, why aren't the offensive people more involved on what the defenders are doing? Because I guarantee you that the offensive people they claim they have sure aren't looking at life this way. 
Well, sobering uh, information and uh, 40 years of experience and reflection. I'm just sort of finishing up uh, a, a longer than usual interview with Joe Weiss, Managing Partner in Applied Control Solutions, LLC. Uh, prolific speaker, writer, congressional testimonies, uh, at least five of those that I know of, and uh, patent holder, inventor in this in this space. And and uh, your you know your your words are are, are certainly of the kind that uh, should concern a lot of people. And and I'm I'm glad that uh, you were able to come on the show today and and share your you know your your perspective. Derek, thank you so much for asking for having me on. Well, if you're ready for it, we'll uh, end the show the way I like to with the Pavot questionnaire. I've borrowed this from inside the actor studio, long running television show, and the, the host who has now passed on, unfortunately, James Lipton, and ended all of his shows interviewing famous actors and actresses with this same set of 10 questions that he borrowed from a French show, hence the name. Uh, and, that, and so I think this has been running for many decades. It's been used as a questionnaire. And so um, I always find it fun, and most of my guests have said it's been fun to answer that. If you're up for it, I'll ask you the the, uh, the Pavot questionnaire. Yeah, please do. All right. What is your favorite word? Grandkids. What is your least favorite word? Honeydew. What turns you on, either creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Making a difference. What turns you off? Not making a difference. What is your favorite curse word? I'll keep it clean. Damn. What sound or noise do you love? My kids, my grandkids saying grandpa. What sound or noise do you hate? Shrieking or gears, you know, rubbing. Something saying there's a problem here. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I had thought a long time ago about being, trying to be way too old, you know, professional racquetball or pickleball or something like that. Too old, but it's fun. What profession? Bike riding is fun, but not as a profession. What profession would you like to not do? Politics. And if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? You're welcome. You're welcome here. Thank you, Joe Weiss, for all your years of contribution and passion and interest and energy uh, focused on the problem of control system, cybersecurity, and for uh, coming on uh, today's show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.